When something momentous happens in our lives, we often turn to the written word to share our enthusiasm. For a lot of people today, that means a text, an email, or perhaps a Facebook post. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. A new book explores how time and time again, everyday folks turn to storytelling, more specifically poetry, to record and respond to what's happening in their lives. The book is called The Poetry of Everyday Life, Storytelling and the Art of Awareness. The author is folklorist, writer, and cultural activist Steve Zeitlin. Steve is the founding director of the nonprofit cultural center City Lore in Manhattan. Steve, hello. How are you? Very good, thank you. So you are a folklorist. What specifically does a folklorist do? Well, the easiest way to put it is that a folklorist is on this planet to ensure that great art of all kinds does not slip through the cracks of other disciplines. So we're there to, whenever there are art forms that are under-recognized, forgotten about, marginalized, or overlooked, um, we're there to try to document them, draw attention to them, and shine a spotlight on them so that people can get a full sense of the richness of everyday life. What drew you to folklore? Well, the, the, the story that I, that I like to tell, because not too far from here, um, there lived a folklorist uh, back in the 50s named Benjamin Botkin. He actually lived in Croton. And um, I was a student of English at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was wandering through the shelves of the library, and I came across a book called The Folklore of New York City. And I picked it up, and I opened it to a kind of random page, and I came across a children's rhyme which caught my attention, which went, I should worry, I should care, I should marry a millionaire. Hmm. He should die, I should cry, I should marry another guy. And I thought, boy, that is really some beautiful folk poetry, like, you know, this would be the perfect job for me, you know, look, listening to people's stories, probably the same way that you uh, started doing cityscapes, mm-hmm. um, just an interest in, in people's stories. And um, one of my things I've come to believe is that as people get to know each other better and, uh, and communicate more richly, they, they, their conversation moves from prose towards poetry. So poetry what do you mean by actually, that exactly? How so? Well, because, because I think, you know, we... In my family, going back to when I was a little kid, we, I was aware, very aware that we had all these exp- wonderful expressions that came from different things. Like one day my brother was passing out chiclets, and instead of taking two, I took five. And, and he said, well, why don't you just jump off the 15-story window for a breeze on a hot day? And uh, I thought, you know, that, that would be uh, every time uh, I was overdoing anything from drinking to drugs or anything like that. It was always, you know, why don't you just jump off the 15-story window for a breeze on a hot day? And I just realized that there's something kind of magical in that and magical in the way people use illusions. Um, and and uh, and you don't have to tell the whole story. You can just tell the punchline. You just know, you know each other so well. Even in the way you greet each other, because I understand you greet your brothers as Yo Sire. Yeah, yeah exactly. To this day, you know, I greet him as Yo Sire. Somebody once asked him why, and he said, respect. <laughs> so, uh, and my kids refer to each other as swine dog, you know. Uh, so, so, <laughs> Not respect. <laughs> no. <laughs> no respect. <laughs> no respect. So, um, and there's a beautiful, one of my favorite things in the book is a story by Virginia Randall. And she talks about uh, losing her her um, her husband when her husband died. Um, there were all these expressions that 
she didn't have anybody to share anymore. And uh, and she actually ends the story by saying, you know, I'm the last speaker of us now. Mm. And um, that's that is always always very moving to me. How do you define poetry? Well, that's a good question because this this book really is a combination of a, a folklorist's uh, view of the world and a poet's view of the world. Um, when I say poets, I'm I'm not talking about recognition as a poet, but writing poetry. And I I kind of feel like just as I I talked about in terms of people's conversation being layered, you know, when things are beautifully patterned, we speak of them as being poetry. You know, we we speak of poetry in motion. We speak of a swish. You know, of a beautiful basketball shot as being poetry. So, so I'm I'm really talking about the poetics of life. You know, what's poetic about it? And uh, I am very much of a word of a word person. Some people might see it differently. They might talk about it in, in other terms. But for me, human beings are homo poeticus. Um, that's sort of the the way I see the world and the way I experience the world. So I try to write about that in lots of different ways in which I've encountered it. You have a chapter in the book called Poetry in Play. You talk about racquetball. I talk about ping pong. Yeah, ping, ping pong. pong. I talk about ping pong. Um, and I, I also talk about all, all sports. I mean, just you take about things like how does a baseball player know that he's hit a home run the second the ball hits the bat? Um, and in ping pong, you know, you're, we're, we're – the, the racket switch from a hard racket to a foam racket. And so there's there's all these spins. And if you spin the ball one way and then you loop it the other way, it, the spin quadruples. And, and there there gets to be a back and forth that is a kind of dialogue between the two players. And, and there's also the sense, it's sort of a kinesthetic look at poetry, the way it feels in your body. Um, there's even a sense that you kind of go into a trance when you're in a sport. You're, you're, you're talking, we, we talk about flow where, Time loses all perspective. You're just in the moment. You're just in the game. And I, I try to look at that as part of the poetics of life. And uh, I see it in, you know, Clyde Fraser's, you know, moving and grooving, shaking and baking. You know, he came to City Lord to talk about the poetry of basketball. And he told, went, went through all of his rhymes, you know, you know, uh, shaking and baking and, and uh, all the different, you know, splendor on the glass, all the wonderful phrases he uses. And somebody raised their hand and said, well, have you actually ever written a poem? And he said no. So part of what I do in the book is try to show that, that there is an element of life that is about finding meaning in very personal things. Mm -hmm. And we can turn to that and find solace in that and find meaning in it because that's really where the meaning of our lives are. You say in the introduction of your book that we write to order the mess. Yes. So the world as it exists, if you just wrote down everything that happened, would be a gigantic laundry list. And it's up to us to order that and make a poem out of it, uh, make a poem out of that laundry list of everything that's happened, uh, try to show what's more important and what's more heartfelt. And um, what I kind of feel like when you're, when you're telling a story or listening to a story, you know, you're talking about a plot that's unfolding linearly. But when you're, when you're talking about a poem, you're talking about a pattern. There's, when things start rhyming, they start connecting. The beginning and the end start connecting. And things... Uh, things are related to each other in different ways than just a linear sequence. And I think that's what poetry is. And when you start to see that in life, we start to see its meaning. As you mentioned, poetry is used in times of personal and even in national crisis. That, that's right. We saw after 9-11, a lot of people turned to words to make sense of it. Right. And by the way, today I was at 14th Street on Union Square uh, 
which I, I'd heard about, but I hadn't seen. But people have there are entire walls of post-its after this election, where people are putting up their words to respond to the to this uh, election, just as they did after nine one one in New York. I mean, New York. That's the way we respond, is we do it in words. All those missing posters were were uh, became memorials and became a form of words. They were there's still of them. Some of them that are still up. Um, and uh, and we collected lots of really beautiful poetry, some of which was sentimental poems that started cropping up after nine one one, and a lot of really great original ones as well. You also talk about how people turned to poetry to deal with AIDS during the height of that epidemic. Um, I did. I do. I I um, had the opportunity to work with a creative writing teacher uh, at the Greenwich Village AIDS Society um, named Lila Zeiger, and. I got to interview some of the people who were really dying with, of AIDS and they since did die of AIDS and how they looked at their life uh, was so dramatic, um, so incredibly intense. And, um, you know, talking about things that came to them, knowing that they would not get a chance to be very old. And um, I thought that the, the way in which they used words was a remarkable way of trying to make meaning from their lives. Um, one of the things uh, Lila did at the at the center was she had a prom, and everybody wrote, you know, uh, what they want to be when they grow up. You know, they they did exactly like a high school yearbook, um, what their what all their dreams were, and they all dressed up as characters, and um, somehow in that uh, found meaning. You know, um, most likely too. They were they had each one was the most likely too, and then when a lot of them died, they used those as their memorials as well. So, I just feel like. And and I talk about the whole life cycle because what happens is that in times of crisis and in times of change and navigating transitions, that's when we use poetry. When people mm-hmm. get married, uh, there's a lot of classic poems that they use and they write their own poems. And um, when people die, that they use poems. And when p- babies are christened, they use poems. So the idea that uh, poetry is not a big part of our lives is not the case at all. Mm-hmm. You also talk about poetry in relation to sex, and you say that to leave sex out of a book like this <laughs> would simply invite an elephant into the room. Right, right. It's controversial because, of course, some of the this book is published by Cornell University Press, and some of the readers suggested that that the the chapter on sex had no place there. You know, so um, I I kind of wanted it to be there because I didn't want the namby pambiness of life to just be to go unanswered. You know. And, um, you know, I talk about a lot of the, you know, the ways that uh, that people describe sex in different ways and the way in which they use language mm-hmm. and that way in which they try to find a form of communication across the sexes, which is people are so different from each other and they have to find a way to communicate uh, about topics that uh, nobody tells them how to do. And they've got it's like each couple has to establish their own language and it may be a language just of intonations, uh, but it's part of a kind of creativity of the way we live and the way we still try to find meaning in things. Even sexting, you say, is a form of storytelling. (laughs) Beginning with, what are you wearing? (laughs) I say that, I don't know. Maybe that was going a little far. But uh, but I I feel like, um, you know, we're often caught up where there's a lot of cliches, but some people are funny and, and humorous with the cliches, and some people aren't. And so there's there's a creativity that's involved even in how we use the cliches. And I appreciate you're reading the book so carefully there. (laughs) You also say that childhood has its own poetry, that the young play with newfound words that often address their common concerns. Yeah. 
What is an example of that? Well, um, you know, my daughter, this goes back because City Lore also did a film on girls' hand, cal- hand clapping games. But this one goes back to my daughter, which um, is just so so marvelous. You know, eeny, meeny, sicilini, uumbopcellini, achikachi, liberaci, I hate boys. Saw you with your boyfriend, how'd you know? Looked out the window, nosy, ate a box of candy, greedy, didn't flush the toilet, nasty, you know, jumped out the window. Now I know you're really crazy, eeny, meeny, Cicilline. I mean, think of all the wordplay that's involved in that. And um, nobody knows who wrote it. It's just been passed down on playgrounds. And you still hear it, uh, even even today, um, you know, with kids at, between certain ages who are left to their own devices on the playground. Poetry isn't just important to you. It's important to your family. It's a big part of your family life. You talk about how you all get together on a porch in South Carolina and you read poetry together. <laughs> well, my uh, my wife's dad is 99 years old and he has he he has he's always been a great lover of poetry. And um and he has this book of poems called The 101 Favorite Poems, I think came out in 1929. He still carries it around. And and one night we decided, well, let's just have a night and he will go out and, and we'll read poems. And then he suggested that we do it every every week. And then and then it became a tradition in South Carolina to do that. Um, and, of course, it's done partly for him. And uh, people always sing Loch Lomond at the end of it. And it's actually a, a fantastic tradition. I recommend it to, to every family. It just, it's so easy. And, and remarkably, you know, the kids come out. They have uh, Shel Silverstein poems that they read. Um, and and uh, sometimes the poems are famous, uh, you know, Shelley and Keats and Byron and William Butler Yeats and T.S. Eliot. And, and sometimes uh, people will read some of their, something that they themselves wrote. How much more intimately would you say you get to know your family members through that process, through the poetry? Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is that the the poems that everybody reads really have something to do with them. You know, the they ones that you, they select uh, are really part of them. Like Amanda's dad, 99 years old, he always reads Shelley's The Cloud. And his point in, in, in it is that... Is that uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the hydrologic cycle is captured so well, you know, because uh, the, the water evaporates, but it never vanishes in that poem. And so he's always interested in how you can learn so much about the weather from reading Shelley's poem. And this is very characteristic of him. Um, other poems are read because they're in honor of Amanda's mother, who once uh, danced uh, Minnie the Moocher on a table, and th- therefore there's a poem, My Grandmother Danced, and so her sister always reads that poem in honor of her now-deceased mother. So it's really, it's a way of sharing people's favorite poems, and it's also a way of sharing their own personalities with each other by what they choose. What's your favorite poem? Um, maybe Under Ben Bobin by William Butler Yeats. <laughs> um, I, I you know, I have great respect. I think one of the things about the book is that it takes a very broad look at, at poetry and uh, sort of uh, Peary Thomas had a film that he made called Every Child a Poet and, and it looks at it that way. It's not to say that you don't admire great poems. You know, I do. And uh, we read them and, and we get, there's a, they get an enormous amount out of them. At the same time, you know, I've taught writing classes and I, I feel like one of my favorite um, 
piece is, is called I Am From. Uh, and it just, people, uh, each line beginning with the line I Am From, and it comes from a, a poem by uh, George, George Ella Lyon, who did, so, who did something like that. That was an um, exercise for your students. It was. It was. But you get, you know, um, you know, Alicia Vasquez, I am from ducking bullets by the bedroom window with mom in 1974 in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I'm from controlling the flow of fire hydrant water through a can of Chef Boyardee while dreaming of swimming in a real pool one day. I am from waiting for Mr. Softy's beautiful symphony. I am from listening to Cuban beats and salsa picante rhythms on a transistor radio while camping out on someone else's car. You know, you just get such a feeling for Alicia from those very simple lines. Uh, um, or from, I am, I am from a bar or bat mitzvah every weekend and that awful naked feeling of chilly pantyhose at 13. Inexpert makeup, braces for years and years before I was pretty. Um, or... Uh, Tracy Lynn John Howell, a student from Tobago. I am de bacon, saltfish, crab and dumpling, callaloo and pong plantain, coconut jelly, mango chutney, and tamarind balls, all sold when the island have boat racing. Hmm. Or from a high school student that I taught, I am from technology as a microprocessor, as a gateway to life. So you just get so many different, you know, you just, you, you realize that in the details of people's lives, so much of their essence, their soul comes out in it. And that's one of the reasons I want to combine folklore, which oftentimes looks at, at shared culture, with people's personal folklore. And and the I Am From poems is very much people's personal mythology, people's personal folklore. I was going expression. to ask your advice for how do you find your voice. And I guess that's a great way to find your voice, just answer that question, I Am From. Yeah, yeah. And just to, just to list those details, oftentimes gives people a sense of their voice. Um, that's one of the projects that I talk about in the book. Uh, another one is called Place Moments, which we've, we've worked a lot with at City Lore through the power of place. But, you know, there's, there's a, a sense of describing a place, but then there's a place as it exists for you in a certain moment of time. And in some ways, when those are the moments, like, you know, a certain tree where you kissed, were kissed underneath the tree when you walked under it. Um, things like that 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 uh, capture places as they existed for you in a moment of time um, when a shadow looked a certain way or something like that. Um, so I talk about finding your breath on the mirror. There's that old scene in cop movies where they try to see if someone's dead by holding up a mirror. Mm -hmm. So I, I use that image of of trying to find, you know, see if you can see your breath on the mirror. Um, the uh, story that I start the book on is a long time ago was with a friend of mine. And I asked him if he told stories to his kids. And he said, um, you know, I did, you know, for years I have, you know, I have a, he had a small child and he said, I went through Snow White and the Three Little Pigs and, and uh, Cinderella. I told all the stories I knew. And one day I ran out of stories for my son who was named Saul. And so I just said to him, well, one day there was a little boy named Saul and he woke up in the morning and he had a bowl of Cheerios. And then he waited for the school bus, and then he came home and had some Kraft macaroni and cheese. And he said, ever since that day, the only story that his son wanted to hear was the story of his own day. Hmm. And I, I always took that to mean that, that we, we find great art from people that we don't know in museums and, and uh, books of poetry and things like that. But we, we need to find the poetry in our own lives as well, and because it's our own story that we, 
we need to understand and we need to use to give meaning to our own lives and understand, hey, this is my story. And um, it's not going to change because Donald Trump became president, for instance. Uh, it's cause, you know, it's something that you have to look for and find and believe in. How did you come to the realization that building a wall, speaking of Donald Trump, <laughs> building a wall oh, yeah, a is wall. like <laughs> constructing a poem? Um, my wife had done a project on stonemasons in Westchester County, and I really am amazed at the ability of people to build dry stone walls where you just stack stones and you stack them so ingeniously that you build a wall that doesn't fall of its own weight. Uh, so I decided I was going to build a dry stone wall. And near my house in Hastings, I went out to the creeks and looked for stones and tried to figure out how to stack them up. And I built this wall. But as I was doing it, uh, and I was taking time away from writing poetry to build this this wall in the backyard, I was realizing that, that the stones are like words and that you're trying to put them together. And whereas the stones are so heavy, uh, you have to be able to balance them in this very, very light way. And the, and the words are so light, but you have to piece them together in ways that they can never come apart. Um, so, so I started to realize that there was a, a kind of metaphor there and that building the wall was a, a kind of lesson in poetry. And, um, you know, I end the book, you know, how else to get blood from a stone? You know, you just, we're trying to get uh, meaning out of, out of lives that are not always easy to see what they mean and why you're here. Uh, and, uh, you know, you want to try to find that way of looking at it in a way that that uh, that holds up. That's like a stone wall that it's not going to crumble of its own weight and that you put together in your own way and that you can take some satisfaction in. And um, we need that. Uh, we need that as we go through our daily lives. And uh, we need it to transcend some of the way in which life treats us sometimes. How frequently are you writing poetry? I pretty much write poetry every day. Um, I just find it's just a great way to start the day. And I see it as, you know, as looking in a mirror, not to comb my hair or brush my teeth, but to kind of remind myself of who I am and, uh, and what speaks to me, you know. And then I can try to start the day and uh, deal with all the things that I have to deal with that really don't seem very much like me, but I've got to deal with them. <laughs> the book introduces readers to the many eccentric and visionary characters that you've met throughout your career as a folklorist, uh -huh. including one of my personal favorites. She's been on the show before, Annie Lanzalotto. Yeah. A great, great character yeah. here in New York City. What did someone <laughs> like? First of all, why don't you explain who Annie is and what you've learned from her? Okay. Well, Annie is a dear friend of mine, too, and um, she's a performance artist. She's a classic New York City performance artist, and she grew up in the Bronx, and um, she moved away from the Bronx when she was 12 years old, but she still retains her Bronx accent fiercely, um, and she was a, she loved playing with the boys. She was, you know, she was the ultimate tomboy, and she, I call her the queen of the Spaldine because she loved the Spalding ball and she slept with the Spalding ball. She would wash it. She would go to bed with it, wake up in the morning with it. And she tells a story that, that she went to Coney. This, she was going to college. She was the first girl in her family to go to college. She was going to Brown. She was out in Coney Island, had this wonderful experience with, this, with her girlfriend. And she had a, decided to give her mother a painting 
for for um, a going away present when she went away to college. And so, a boardwalk painter painted her painting, and she gave it to her mother. And and when her mother looked at the painting, she saw a small little curve on drawn on her neck, like a, the curve of a Spaldine. And she said, "What's that?" And that was what diagnosed uh, her with with cancer for the first time. And she went to Brown, where she was in a group of terminally ill kids, and she was the only survivor of that. And in her many years of dealing with all kinds of different illnesses relating to that, the Spaldine was this metaphor for her. And she's done all of these performance shows of using the Spaldine and going back to this wonderful line when her mother said, are you made of rubber? And she said, yes, mom, I'm made of rubber. And it just goes to show how that that image could be so powerful in helping somebody survive so many really difficult traumas. So she captures, you know, she captures a lot of what uh, to me is so wonderful about New York and uh, and so wonderful about the people you get to meet, really, if you're a folklorist, an official one or not, if you take the time to really talk to people. You make it clear in the book, no doubt, that you've learned a lot of things from a lot of people. And another gentleman, Captain Kellum, a skipper captain from the eastern shore of Maryland, you say that he taught you that there is no such thing as an <laughs> indispensable man. Well, you know, the, one of the things that we also talk about um, is that there's a, there's a tradition of poetry recitations that has sort of died out. But people used to recite poems the way you would sing songs, uh, the way you would have singer-songwriters. You know, in the uh, WFUV of yesteryear, people would have been reciting poems mm-hmm. as well. And and uh, Robert Service poems are one of them. And this, this one I actually spoke to. It's a woman named Saxon White Kessinger. But Captain Kellum recited this fantastic poem um, that I always remembered uh, that goes, You take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist. Pull it out, and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how you'll be missed. You can splash all you wish when you enter. You may stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is just do the best you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man. Um, you know, that's such a wonderful poem, and uh, and it's great that it was remembered. It was remembered by Captain Kellum for me. Saxon White Kessinger was a unknown poet who died years back, and it was a poem in a journal that people picked up and started reciting. You take us on a stroll through Untermeyer Park in Yonkers in this book. <laughs> Why did you take us to Untermeyer Park? Untermeyer Park is one of the great unknown jewels of New York. It's in Yonkers, but it's uh, very close to the city. It's very accessible. And it's it's a Persian garden, but it's a Persian garden that itself was modeled on the Garden of Eden. So y- you actually go there and you see the the, uh, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, and you see the four rivers that ran through Eden, uh, all represented, and uh, and many different mythological themes that are talked about in in, in the f- way in which that garden is created. It's really marvelous, and um, definitely worth a trip. And um, I went there, and I at first I was just writing about it to try to bring it to the attention of people that they should visit the garden. But I also realized that it was a way of thinking about ancient myths and that our own stories still find um, a backdrop in ancient myths. And I I was reminded of that in Untermeyer Park, and I I try to write about it. Um, There's um, the myth of the birth of the hero, which is uh, the the idea of Moses being... uh, 
left in the bulrushes, uh, one of the most ancient stories or biblical stories that we that we have. Um, and my friends and I in graduate school always talked about how it was similar to the Superman myth. And Superman left Krypton. Superman's father left, uh, shot him out of a rocket, and he was raised by by um, you know farmers on a little farm, just like Moses was raised in the bulrushes. And and talked about how the the writers of that of Superman, the original comic book writers in the 1930s, probably knew the Moses story, and they were retelling it as Superman. And now it's become the essence of all of our myths. And um, so there's something wonderful about the way in which we've used stories and keep using stories, uh, and that we use those stories to make sense of our lives to this day. You reference Superman. I'll bring in Batman. Batman had the Batmobile. You have the Poemobile. <laughs> Tell us about the Poemobile. The Poemobile is a, um, a crazy 1988 Chevy Step van, totally painted and bedecked with poems that we use to project poems onto walls and buildings in tandem with live readings and performances. And we've taken it to many different uh, uh, neighborhoods and neighborhood plazas throughout New York City. I use it as a kind of rumination on, you know, well, how does poetry work to save the world? How can we share poetry and really in sharing poetry find some common ground? Well, the book is The Poetry of Everyday Life, Storytelling and the Art of Awareness. Steve Zeitlin, thank you so much for coming in. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for asking so many diverse questions, showing that you've really gone through the book pretty closely. So thank you so much. Steve Zeitlin's The Poetry of Everyday Life, Storytelling and the Art of Awareness is published by Cornell University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Salas. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.